While you're taking your seats, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Our text this morning will be Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. If you don't have a Bible or the app on your phone, consider the, you can look at the Pew Bible. That'll be on page 840. And while you're turning there, I, I must give you all a warning of something dangerous that was brought to my attention this morning that will affect everyone in this room. The clock, the preacher's clock, is broken. <laughs> so it is like preaching a sermon blindfolded. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease." While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the rulers of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. And he said, Talithia kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Father, we pray that your word would touch our hearts. That this message concerning your son 
would be effectually applied by your Spirit to our hearts. O Lord, that our hearts would be soft and receptive to your word, as has already been prayed. We might receive truth, apply truth, walk in truth. Pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. When the baby dies, when your spouse is rushed to the hospital, when you get news that the market has crashed and you're wondering, will I even have a job? When being a Christian means that you are automatically politically incorrect. When your child walks away from the faith. When you hear the dreaded words, it's cancer. When life bottoms out and you are at rock bottom. When faith and fear collide. Where do you turn? Where's your hope? To whom do you turn? Here in this passage of Mark chapter 5, we see two episodes of where faith and fear collide. And there are great lessons for us to learn here concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, as well as these two individuals who showed faith and also showed fear. I want us to notice first here in verses 21 through 24. What we have here, Jesus has crossed back over the Sea of Galilee in the previous section. Maybe a couple days before, they go on this night mission. And they go through the Sea of Galilee on a night mission, and the mega storm comes. A storm of epic proportions. The perfect storm that nobody has ever seen before. Jesus calms the storm. He asks the question, why are you afraid? Have you no faith? The disciples see the power of the God-man who speaks to winds and waves as they subside. All creation submits to Jesus. But they go through this night, through the storm, to reach the other side, to come across, to meet this garrison man, this man that is out of his mind, possessed by thousands of demons. And Jesus goes and heals the man. And the people there see what occurs And they tell Jesus, go away. All the pigs run off the cliff. And they say, get away from us. You have ruined our economy. You have ruined our livelihood. We care more about pigs than people. And so they go down through the night, through the sea. They spend the day there. He heals the man. And then then turns right around and goes right across, back up the Sea of Galilee to this account. Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. Some 13-mile journey back north. Most likely, he ends back up in Capernaum where he started. We notice that there's a great crowd that is assembled as Jesus arrives. We must understand here at this point, even in the ministry of Jesus, he's a local celebrity. Everybody knows who he is. He's done many great and mighty works and miracles in and around the northern part of Galilee and in Capernaum and the surrounding cities. If it were today, many people would be lining up for selfies and autographs with Jesus. And we notice here that when Jesus arrives, he is immediately met by one of the rulers of the synagogue, a man named Jairus. This, no doubt, is a devout Jew ruler of the synagogue. He's an elder in the synagogue. 
If this is Capernaum, most likely he would have been privy to the, uh, the healing that occurred in chapter 1 where Jesus goes into the synagogue and there's a demon-possessed man and Jesus puts him back into his right mind. If he wasn't there, he certainly heard about it as a ruler of the synagogue. And from Jairus here, what we see is a faithful request, a request that is full of faith. He says to Jesus, my little daughter is dying. My little daughter is at the point of death. My little daughter is as good as dead. Come, lay your hands on her that she might live. What a contrast from the previous encounter. Jesus is driven out of this Gentile territory. They're saying, go. And we get here and Jerry's is saying, come. They want Jesus to go away from them Jairus wants Jesus to come with him, certainly pointing to the faith in Jairus. He is a man full of faith. The fact that Luke and Mark both record his name indicates that he could have certainly been somebody of prominence in the early church. Mark wanted his readers to know this man's name. What do we know about Jairus even from this text? He trusted the testimony of Christ. He trusted the power of Christ. He trusted the willingness of Jesus Christ. He was a man of faith. We also can note here concerning Jairus, he's a desperate man. He is a desperate man. His little girl, as Luke would tell us, his only child is as good as dead. And so here in the first instance, we see faith and fear collide in the life of of Jarius. It's important to note desperate situations tend to bring out what is under the surface in many people. Where do you turn in desperation? We could all take one from Jarius here that when faith and fear collide, we are to turn to Christ. We are to turn to Jesus. Fear reveals our faith, and faith reveals our fear. Notice here the willingness of Jesus. Jairus comes with this faithful request, come, lay your hands on her, that she might be made well and live. And it is almost like Mark records this as just a passing thought. Verse 24, and he went with him. No hesitation. No, I just got here. Can I get settled into my room? Can Can I unload You don't know what the past few days have been for me. I just sailed all night. We heal this man. I turn around and sail all the way back. No, Jesus desires to do good. This is the nature of Christ that we see here. This is the heart of Jesus. He does not refuse those who seek him in faith. He is a willing Savior. It is no burden for him to do good to people. So, He goes on. He obliges to the request of Jairus, this desperate man. No doubt we see a father's love for his child and Jesus' willingness to go. But we get interrupted. This is a Mark sandwich here. We get interrupted with this other event that takes place. And so we could look at this and see the outcome of Jairus' daughter, or we can work through the text the way Mark wants us to read it. 
I prefer to do things the way Mark does. He controls the meaning, not me. So, we'll get back to Jarius, but we must see first and foremost what happens along the way. Jesus goes along the way with Jairus. Great crowds are now wanting to see the miracle worker do his thing. And we are introduced to another important character. One who causes no little disturbance. And we don't have her name. But we see here in verses 25 through 29, it is a woman who had a discharge of blood. This is significant in so many ways. What we have here, first and foremost, is an encounter with a woman. We are in the 21st century, but if we were to go back to the first century, this is something that we lose in time to understand the significance of this face-off with Jesus and the woman in the midst of a great crowd. Women aren't to address men publicly. In first century culture, women were treated as second class. The Pharisees had a prayer that went something like this. Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Women did not get the same treatment concerning value and dignity as men in the first century. So she's got this against her by societal and cultural standards, but she also, it's like she has a double whammy here. Not only is she a woman, but she has this discharge of blood. What does this mean? This means that her menstruating phase would not end. For 12 consecutive years, she lived with this debilitating condition. If we were to seek to try to figure out her age, she'd be anywhere between, say, 24 and 50 years old. Likely somewhere in the middle. But what this woman suffered with was no small matter. This is physically draining, emotionally, spiritually, and financially. She couldn't have children, which was the most esteemed thing a Jewish woman could do. Because they would go back to the promise in Genesis that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So the greatest thing the Jewish women could do was that they would produce that seed. She couldn't do that. She couldn't fulfill her God-given privilege. In essence, although she was a woman, she was robbed of womanhood. She's got this disease. She's a woman. Well, let's just add insult to injury. She's ritually unclean. She's banned from public worship. Nobody was to be in contact with this woman because to be in contact with her, you become unclean. Time does not permit for a study of this, but make a note, Leviticus 15 deals exactly with this. It deals specifically with her condition of this discharge of blood. I will just read one verse in chapter 15, verse 7. We read, Whoever touches the body of one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. It is quite interesting that the clothing is also deemed unclean and must be washed. What does she want to do? She wants to touch Jesus' clothing. Brothers and sisters, this is a broken woman in every conceivable way. She is desperate, and she too has great faith. 
Notice here in verse 27. She's gone through great suffering. Many charlatans called physicians said they could fix her and they couldn't. She's gone, gotten worse and worse and worse. Her suffering has gone from bad to worse. And notice what we see in verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. She heard the word of Christ. Not only did she hear the word of Christ, but she accepted it as truth. Not only did she give assent to the truthfulness of what she heard in the facts, she trusted in Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Because she acted upon what she believed. We know this to be true because what we read here in verse 27 She heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. We should not just read that lightly. Think about what she just had to go through after everything I've just described to you. Here we see faith and fear once again collide in this woman. She enters the crowd. She's not allowed to be around people. She's not allowed to be in contact with people. She enters the crowd. Certainly there's a fear of rejection. There's a fear of disappointment. We can't read these characters as robots. They're not. They're they're emotional creatures. They're human beings. She's not robotically enter the crowd and make her way to Jesus. No doubt she's terrified. She covers herself. She doesn't want to be recognized. Someone will spot her and get her out of there. We can't have an unclean woman among this group of people. If anyone touches her, they're unclean. Her entire life has been one of rejection, failure, and broken promises. No doubt she's battling faith and fear, but we see in this account, faith prevails. So she braves the crowd, cloaked, not to be recognized, and in faith, she reaches out and touches the back of Jesus' garment. Imagine what she could have been thinking. If I can just get to him, if I can just reach him, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to cause a scene. I don't want to cause a stir, but I know Because he has the power to heal. I heard of everything he did at Peter's house. How they brought the people all night to him. And he did not cease to do good. I won't touch him so as to make him unclean. But if I can just grasp the garment, I will be made well. So we see a faithful reach. As she reaches out in faith to lay hold of Jesus. From a faithful reach, verse 29, a fulfilling reward. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She's well. She's immediately made well. Mark goes through intentional effort to let you know how immediate Jesus' immediate Jesus's power works. It's not like take the pill in a few hours, you'll start to feel better. It's not like when he tells the wind and the waves to calm down that they're like, all right, we're we're getting there. Immediately, it stops. Immediately, all things surrender to Jesus at his word. Think about Saul on the Damascus Road. Immediately, 
Jesus has the authority and the power to change things immediately. The constant cramps in her are relieved. Her heart was healed. Men, you can only speculate how she felt. Women, you have a slight understanding of this. Ladies, you know the relief that she felt in her mind and her body and her soul. We see here in desperation, she too was driven to Jesus. When faith and fear collide, where do you turn? When desperation comes in, we see in here with her, her faith triumphs. And then verses 30 through 33, but as is the case with all of us who are believers, again, we're not robots. When faith and fear collide, there are times when fear triumphs over faith. We must admit that. And we succumb to the pressure of fear. This is in the case of this woman as well, as we would see her fearful reply. Up until this point, as she's been healed, her faith has been a private matter. But no longer. We read that Jesus stops and he asks the question, who touched me? Well, we know Jesus is omniscient. Jesus knows all things. He didn't ask the question to try to figure out the answer. No, that's not the case here. What he's doing is he's setting this woman up for a public display of faith. It's only been private at this point. He asked the question for her good. Private faith benefits the person. Public faith benefits the people. But here we go, the knuckleheads, the disciples, they don't seem to get it. They never seem to get it. Anytime you read more often than not, and the disciples said, expect kind of the open mouth insert foot moment. And it happens again here. You see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, who touched me? They would have done better if they said what they said in the previous section, which was nothing. Jesus doesn't even respond to them. But Jesus stops, and looking around, he locks eyes with the woman, looking to see who touched him. She's been discovered. This wasn't her intention. She feels like she's been caught. Now remember, a little girl is dying. Jairus' daughter is dying. Jairus is probably thinking, Jesus, time is of the essence here. We don't have time to waste with who touched you. My little girl is about to die. Can we get on with it? No doubt his fears are starting to rise. Time is of the essence, Jesus. But what nobody understands in this moment is that the Lord of time is standing there. No, Jesus stops midway because before addressing Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, he needs to turn to his daughter who's been suffering for 12 years and address her. And again, we see in verse 33, faith and fear collide. Notice here, look at your text. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Many of the details that Mark had already given us. Her faith is shaken. Fear is taking over in this moment. And instead of privately coming up and grabbing Jesus from behind, notice her posture now. She is prostrate before him. She's about to give glory to God. She told him 
the whole truth. Jesus, I've been burned so many times. I've tried everything and everyone to fix this condition that I have. I am unclean. I am a lawbreaker. I'm second class. Men are disgusted by me. My life is a wreck. All my hopes and dreams and ambitions are gone. But you healed me. I've heard of you. I've heard of how you heal, how you fix, how you make what is unwell, well. Jesus, I didn't want to cause a scene, but I truly believed in your power and in you. And as fear and weakness overtake her because of her past, she hears a blessed reply. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in verse 34. Daughter, a term of endearment. Daughter, your faith has made you well. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to commend you. Neither am I concerned that you touched me, that I was touched by uncleanliness, because I came to get rid of uncleanliness. Because when something that is unclean touches Jesus, Jesus doesn't become unclean. That uncleanliness becomes clean. Think of the leper in Matthew chapter 8. He reaches out and Jesus touches a man with leprosy. And it doesn't say that Jesus got leprosy. Immediately the leprosy was gone. Jesus surely has taken our griefs and borne our sorrows. And yes, eventually he does go outside the camp and he dies as the unclean one. But not now. No, he takes what is unclean and makes it clean. He's been doing this for 2,000 years. He's doing it today. We all come to him unclean. And we need the touch of Christ to make us clean. You can't clean up yourself. Sin has left a crimson stain. But he's washed it white as snow. Jesus calms her fears and commends her faith. When faith and fear collide, remember this, Jesus is gentle. Concerning faith, J.C. Ryle says this. He says, hope brings an eager expectation of good things to come. Love brings a warm and willing heart. Faith brings an empty hand, receives everything, and can give nothing in return. No grace is so important to the Christian's own soul. By faith we begin, by faith we live, by faith we stand. By faith, we walk by faith and not by sight. By faith we overcome. By faith we have peace. By faith we enter into rest. Faith says nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross of Christ I cling. She was healed. She was healed. Now before returning to Jairus, I think there are two matters of theological significance that must be pointed out from this passage. Two errors can be derived from this account that I would just briefly call your attention to. It is that of relics and faith healing. By terms of relics and a spirit of superstition, there have been some throughout church history who have believed in the power of relics. The garment of Jesus is an example here, that there is power in the clothing. There's no power in the clothing. 
The superstition would go so far in Acts chapter 5 that they just would want the shadow of Peter to touch them. So people that weren't well would try to lay down so that as the shadow passed by, they might be healed. The garment of Jesus in this passage was the means of demonstrating faith. Okay? Fabric is fabric. And it remains fabric. There is no effective power in fabric or shadows. Shadows are shadows. You only heal when the sun's out? What about an overcast day? There are nothing else. There are no mystical power powers in Jesus' clothes. The grabbing of the garment was to demonstrate her faith. Now on to the second point. The, well, the superstition concerning relics is idolatry. It's that simple. Second, faith healing. Jesus says in these words, your faith has made you well. Taken from this passage, there are those that have come to the conclusion that if someone has enough faith, they can be healed of any disease. Again, this is a gross error and a misunderstanding of this passage and many of the passages throughout the book of Acts. Brothers and sisters, this is a total lie and it does violence to this text and many other texts and many fragile lambs. We must first ask here, where did her faith come from? Where was the origin of this faith? What is the source of all faith? You would find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is what? A gift from God. God is the giver of faith. God gave her the faith that she exercised. Second, was her faith in the healing or the healer? Understand that as well. We can say both, and that is true, but one flows from the other. So we must see that the power of healing is in Jesus, not in faith. The power of healing is in the person of Jesus, not in the magnitude or the, or the size of her faith. Many of great faith have not been healed because sometimes God's greatest means of conformity to, Im to the image of Christ is to not heal. Think of the Apostle Paul. He was a man of great faith. He prayed three times that this thorn in the flesh would be removed from me. Was the faith healer say, Paul didn't have enough faith? No, that my grace is sufficient for you, that my power is displayed in your weakness. Brothers and sisters, be wary of faith healing and those who are self-proclaimed faith healers. Never trust a faith healer who wears glasses. <laughs> I am thankful that when my dad's arm goes numb on Tuesday morning, that Joy's response isn't, let's just have faith and pray, but let's pray on the way to the hospital, okay? <laughs> certainly pray, certainly believe. Don't be afraid of God's common grace in hospitals. This passage is not about relics and faith healing. It is about the goodness of Jesus to the least of these and the power of Jesus over diseases. It is the goodness of Jesus to a woman who is unclean and his power to heal. That's the point. Now, back to Jairus. 
while all of this is going on, the most fearful result occurs. While he is still speaking, there's interrupted here in verse 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Oh, the sinking feeling in a father's heart. She didn't make it. Death is final. While she was still alive, there was a chance for her. And so the people say, don't bother him anymore. Let's prepare the burial. Again now, faith and fear collide. Consider Jarius' thoughts in this moment. This woman had a disease. My daughter's dead. This isn't fair. Why did we have to get stopped for this? Maybe if we would have made haste, she would have been made well. And then you could have come back and healed her. She would have made it another few months. She's already gone 12 years. Death is final. A parent's worst fear comes true. Your daughter has died. And the one that had all the power to stop it was right there. If it were you, how would you feel in that moment? You know how this story ends, but how would you feel if you were Jarius? He didn't know. Upset? Angry? Why, God? Why is this happening to me? Look at verse 36. When faith and fear collide, Jesus offers comfort. Do not fear. Only believe. What do you mean believe, Jesus? She's dead. Believe. Jesus reduces the crowd we see here. He arrives at the house. Everyone there is mourning, quite naturally. The death of young ones has a way of stinging in a very significant way. And again in verse 39, we see the comfort of Jesus. When he entered this house, he says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Well, he knows why, but he's wanting to set it up once again with his question to let them know and comfort them. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. They didn't understand. They don't know what he means by this. Jesus calms the fearful, and he binds up the brokenhearted. What he means by this is that she will be awakened. Whereas death to all of us signifies the end, when death being the, the, the point in which the soul exits the body, this is nothing to Jesus. This is as though she's taking a nap. She's asleep. What Jesus is communicating here is that he has the power to even rob the grave and take what is dead and bring it to life. And so we see this blessed result. They laughed. Some cried. Many doubted. But Jesus was determined here to perform the miracle. Because the basis for Jesus to exercise his power does not depend on whether or not someone has enough faith. Do you see here? Faith healers should just read the next section. They doubt. They laugh at him. And yet Jesus says, I am determined to display my power and my goodness that all might see. So here, here they are, seven of them. Mark is writing as a second to eyewitness because Peter's in the room. Peter, James, John, Jarius, Mrs. Jarius, the little girl and Jesus, they're all there. And what we see is Jesus' unmatched power unleashed. Little girl, 
I say to you, arise. Never has this happened in the history of humanity. This has never occurred in, up until this point, ever. Some might say, well, what about Elijah and raising the widow's son? No. Elijah took the boy, went upstairs, and appealed to God three times to raise the boy. No, Jesus appeals to her. And he looks at her lifeless corpse and says, arise. He doesn't appeal to the Father because Jesus is one with the Father. And all the power of heaven resides in Christ. For in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. Think about Peter, James, and John just for a moment. What a whirlwind of a few days for them. <laughs> Wind and waves, demons and diseases, they all respond to Jesus' command. But now even the dead must respond to him? What was the result? Immediately, she got up. She didn't start getting her energy back, getting over that sickness. Immediately, she got up and walked, and everybody left awestruck. We have never seen this in the history of humanity. It would only be a matter of time before he would even do this to himself. By the spirit of his own power, after his own crucifixion, would rise from the dead. Because he holds the power of death and hell. He holds the keys. He is alive forevermore, never to die again. Understand this, when faith and fear collide, Jesus overcomes. This is the blessed result. So as we consider this passage, what are some lessons that we might learn? Some things that we might be able to apply in our own lives Think on the power of Jesus for a moment. Storms and demons, diseases and death, all the things that strike fear into our hearts, do they not? Understand this, Christian, your Christ is bigger than the storm, stronger than the demons. He is the great physician that brings the dead to life. When faith and fear collide, Look to the one who says, fear not, only believe. The power of Jesus is unmatched. Think on the compassion of Jesus. He saves the fearful disciples in the storm. They had no faith. Then a Gentile who is demon-possessed. Then a woman. And then a child. Jesus cares for those that society marginalizes. Jesus loves the least of these. You think of the nation of Israel. God tells him, I didn't choose you because you were mighty in number, because you were great, because you were all that. In fact, you were the least of all the clans. I chose you because I loved you. And why did I love you? Because I loved you. And that's the only reason why any of us would ever experience the compassionate touch and love of Christ is because he set his love upon us long before we ever existed. And so what are we to do? We are to show that same compassionate love to one another, both in the church and in the world. Love for your neighbor. Love for your Lord. Think on the goodness of Jesus. 
when faith and fear collide, Jesus does not change. He does not cease to do good because you are fearful. Nor does he give special treatment to those who show forth more faith. He strengthens the weak. He encourages the fearful. I would encourage you here this morning. You come to him. All of you who are weak, fearful, and unworthy. Because our strength and our faith do not come from within. It comes from without. So Christian, do you trust the goodness of Jesus in your life? You say, well, yes, he, he died on the cross. No, I'm serious. Do you trust the goodness of Jesus in your life? What about your day-to-day life? Do you live on the roller coaster of he loves me, he loves me not? Based off of your performance. Based off of if fear overtook you this day and not faith. Again, he has set his love upon you that is an ever, never-changing love. Think of his invitation to all who will come. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus delights in showing his goodness to his brothers and sisters. He does not begrudgingly love you. He did not begrudgingly go to the cross to bear your iniquity, sin, and shame. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So, when faith and fear collide, where do you turn? Turn to him who robs the grave, has secured redemption through, the death, through his death on the cross for our sins. No matter the circumstances that life throws at you, remember these three things. God is good, God is all-powerful, and God knows what he's doing. When the baby dies, when your spouse is rushed to the hospital, when you are betrayed by those whom you trust most, when the market crashes and you're left wondering if you have a job, when being a Christian means you are politically incorrect, when your child walks away from the faith, when you hear the dreaded words, cancer, when you hit rock bottom, that's a good thing because there's only one place to go and that's up. When faith and fear collide, Jesus remains ready with his loving arms outstretched. Come to him. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would strengthen our faith that we would not fear the things of this world, we would not fear the circumstances of life, that we would look to him who made an end to all our fears by securing for us an eternal redemption beyond all comparison. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.